It has been just over a month that we have looked into the topic that we're going to continue this afternoon. And so it was a month ago that we had our ninth study under the title of Looking for Unity. We come this afternoon to our tenth study based out of Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is one of the songs, the psalms of degree that are collected within the pilgrim Psalter. And we discover within these 15 psalms from the 120th to the 134th, inclusive of the 120th, these 15 psalms, we find what we could call a concept continuity. That is to say, there is a narrative that is intended to instruct and edify and bring joy to the hearts of the pilgrims as they make their journey to the feasts at Jerusalem. I want to bring your attention as we begin this 10th study to one of those concepts that is developed within the corpus of these 15 psalms. I'll be reading to you from Psalm 132, not Psalm 133, but the psalm just before, the one that is particularly occupying our attention. And we'll begin in the 13th verse of Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He hath desired it for His habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will clothe her priests with salvation. And her saints, or the people, shall shout aloud for joy. Now when we come to the 133rd Psalm, the very first verse will call our attention to a place of dwelling. The psalm begins, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And we know that the particular place that these brethren to whom this psalm was originally given, the particular place that they were being called to dwell in or at was Jerusalem. For ourselves, it is the location where the brethren gather together in one place because God has called them out to come to that place, to rejoice before His presence, to exercise godly worship, to be ministered to as well as to minister to the Lord themselves. But if you're paying attention to the concept continuity that is within the pilgrim Psalter, then you will make note of the fact that before the brethren are called to dwell at a certain location, we are already told that God has chosen a place to dwell. God dwells somewhere. As a matter of fact, the same verb that is translated dwell in the 14th verse of Psalm 132 and the verb that is translated dwell in the first verse of Psalm 133, yashav, or as it would be in the Greek translation, katoikeo, this means a place to take up habitation, a house within which to remain. With the Greek term, it's an intensified form of the word that means to dwell in a house. It means to settle down in a certain location. And we see what is developing here is the idea of community life with our God. Community life for the Jews in Yahweh. Community life for ourselves in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 132 tells the pilgrim that Zion is the habitation, the place that God has desired. He says, this is where I will dwell. Psalm 133 says, it's good for brethren to come to the place where God dwells. To have it in their spirit, as it were, 
to find the location where God has preceded them, where He has placed His name, where He desires to be, where in very real senses He is always the first one there, but in His grace and mercy we comprise the ecclesia, we comprise those who are like they in Psalm 133, we are called out to come and dwell with God. And we should see this as something that is a great invitation, a beautiful invitation, something that is good and pleasant for brethren to understand the value of community life in God. And we'll notice, even in Psalm 132, some ideas that we are in the process of developing as we enter into this third subtitled study within the overall topic of looking for unity, our third study under the question of how does it flow, and we're going to be investigating a number of important ideas that are associated with that, but we see in Psalm 132 that there is the language of distinction without division. You'll remember that in Psalm 133, the last verse of Psalm 133 says that there is where God commands the blessing, where brethren dwell together in unity. In verse 15 of Psalm 132, we see how that is worked out. We see how that is actually applied to the brethren in principle. God says, I will abundantly bless and he says, I will give provisions to all of the brethren. But we notice that there is a distinction among the brethren. He says, I will satisfy the poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her people shall shout aloud for joy. That is an important idea that I want to draw your attention to as we reflect upon the concept continuity that is built into the pilgrim Psalter. We as modern and current believers living within the principles that Psalm 133 in particular, but within the context of other Psalms that make up the pilgrim Psalms, we as they who are to understand and live within these ideas need to come to an understanding and an appreciation that very obviously if God is asking us and calling us to dwell together in unity, we should not be divided, but that does not erase the distinctions that will yet be found among us. It's interesting to see how the last couple of verses of Psalm 132 end. For just like in Psalm 133 that follows Psalm 132, we have a statement about a location or a situation within which God's blessing occurs. I will read this to you from the New King James Version. Verse 17 of Psalm 132 says, There I will make the horn of David grow. A metaphor that means I will strengthen the leadership and by extension they who align themselves in divine order with that leadership, there I will strengthen them. I will strengthen the horn of David. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. Speaking specifically of the Lord Jesus, a messianic reference, but once again, the anointing, as was the case with Aaron, and as is picked up in Psalm 133, the anointing flows down from the head to the body. And so they that understand and perceive and appreciate the place where God dwells and puts the revelation together is what I'm emphasizing here, the way in which the content continuity works within the pilgrim Psalter they who appreciate these things will experience the light of the anointing that God brings to that place of blessing. Verse 18 promises spiritual strength and victory, God overcoming our enemies. Verse 18 says, His enemies will I clothe with shame, 
but upon himself, that is ultimately the Lord Jesus, but once again, they who are the Lord's anointed, we who live as Christians, which is to say we who live as the anointed of the Lord, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. I've already pointed out that Psalm 133 ends with a very similar remark after speaking about the anointing oil flowing down from Aaron and the dew flowing down from Hermon, it is stated that there the Lord commands the blessing, even life forevermore. So the question that is before us is, how does it flow? If all of these ideas are so richly set before our attention, we have a location that is specified, we have the promise of God's presence, we have the calling to God's people, we have the statement that provision will be brought to every individual, we have the prospect of victory over our adversaries and the strengthening of our work. I suppose if it were the case that in the light of all these remarks that we're reading about, we also could speak of our own powerful experience of all of these things, then I wouldn't need to raise the question, how does it flow? Because we would already be quite aware of the principles and the broader set of ideas that we need to pay attention to in order for that to occur. But I do hope that it is the case for your heart that these studies themselves, like the Pilgrim Psalter, are creating a narrative about the principle and the call to unity that is stirring your attention, both in the interest of unity, generally speaking, but also stirring your attention beyond just the general concept and landing you right where we are presently with a desire in your spirit, a curiosity that is more than just a passing interest, but is becoming more of a burden and a hunger and a thirst, to understand how do we enter into this? How does this actually flow afresh for God's people? And I want to continue to respond to that question in our study this afternoon. The first principle that I'm going to bring to your attention is one that could be taken as being a commonplace, something that is so obvious that it almost need not be stated. But as you will see with me, the irony of responding to this first principle that I will state in a moment, the irony of responding to it as a commonplace will betray you as one who is missing the lesson that Jesus himself is teaching when he makes the following, following remark, which is our first principle. How does it flow? It flows by the truth setting it free. Here is the idea of a beautiful blessing that can be our experience, which is to say that there is a spring, there is a fountain of life, there is a source something like the anointing oil on the high priest of our Lord Jesus Christ, that if things are aligned properly, can reach the entire body down to the very skirts of the garments. Something like the snows on Mount Hermon and the possibility of that reserve of refreshing moisture being made available under certain circumstances, not just to the valleys, below Hermon, but indeed all the way down to Jerusalem itself that, relatively speaking, is lacking its own native resources and needs the heights of something higher to bring blessing to itself, which is very much in keeping with the church of Jesus Christ. We need to see ourselves as lacking resources within us. And the resource itself is somewhat at a distance from us. That is to say, 
It's within the fear of God. It's within pure religion and undefiled. It's within worship in spirit and in truth. It's within the reserves of God's promises that only come to us when we meet the conditions and we find the source of these springs. And I'm saying to you that in order for this to flow, in order for the spring, as it were, to reach us, it has to first be set free. The truth has to set it free. You'll see what I mean about this as we go forward. I certainly mean more than just the obvious remark that Paul refers to in the 10th chapter of the book of Romans when he asks the rhetorical question, how shall anyone believe in Jesus if they haven't heard of Him? When I say the truth sets it free, I certainly do mean that we must be taught on this topic. That would be a clear enough statement and a meaningful enough statement on its own. But I mean, I mean quite a bit more than that. And that's why I'm going to draw your attention to the eighth chapter of John, within which Jesus makes the remark that the truth will set you free. And I want to apply it to the idea of how does this flow? Because I believe in a very similar way, the reasons why the anointing and unity and the blessings that I'm pointing you to in the pilgrim Psalter, the reason why we don't experience it as profusely and consistently and at such depths as is possible is we're not giving space to certain truths that God wants to call us to by His Spirit And it's only when we will come into these deeper truths or it's only when we allow these deeper truths to speak to us and bring repentance and bring change that we will see the fountains begin to break up, as it were, and begin to reach us. We learn in the 20th verse of John chapter 8 that Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's in Jerusalem. We could accurately say He's in Mount Zion the same location that Psalm 132 and Psalm 133 speaks of, where all these pilgrim feasts took place. But he's not near the altar of sacrifice or on the steps or in Solomon's porch. We're told that he's near the offering box. And if you study Jewish literature as to where the offering boxes were located, you will find out that they were located in the forecourt by the court of the women. So what we're seeing here is that Jesus is in the temple location, but He hasn't made His way toward the Holy of Holies. He's on the outskirts, if you will, of the actual temple building itself. He's in one of the courts. He's in the court of the women. That that in itself is quite interesting, given our topic But first, I want to draw your attention to how it illuminates what occurs within this chapter. Verses 1 through 11 describe to us a situation within which scribes and Pharisees present an adulterous woman to Jesus. Now, what I'm stating to you is that women were segregated within the court or within the temple precincts, and they had a particular location that they were to assemble themselves within and they couldn't go beyond that point. Now, I'm not speaking to the rightness or wrongness of that. I'm not even commenting on that. I know such ideas are sensitive in our times and I'm not necessarily placating the sensitivities. What I'm trying to do is bring everyone's attention to just the mere facts. Because what I want you to see, though I don't disagree with the way that the temple was arranged because God has His purposes, but I want you to see that Jesus was in the woman's court ministering and teaching. He was making sure that He was in a location where the women could hear as well, and He was willing to be on the outside of the courts in order to minister to all sorts of people, including the women. In other words, He was interested in in reaching everyone. And it's because he was there that the details of what occur from verse 1 through verse 11 can take place. That is to say, 
that the Pharisees could bring a woman to Jesus is only possible because he wasn't in the men's court. He wasn't in one of the three divisions of the temple itself. He was neither in the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place or the outside immediate court where the laver was and the altar of sacrifice was. He wasn't in Solomon's porch. He wasn't ascending the stairs and sitting on the stairs and speaking to the disciples as they sat at a lower elevation. He was in the women's court. And the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus and there's a confrontation between Jesus and these religious leaders. Beginning in the 12th verse and throughout, in many respects, the rest of the chapter, we have Jesus' discourse about himself as being the light of the world. For example, verse 12 reads, Then spake Jesus unto them. Now the them are the Pharisees, the scribes, but also his disciples. They were in attendance to all that was occurring. Jesus was in the woman's court speaking to his disciples. The Pharisees and the scribes were aware of this. They come. Some were no doubt already there watching, but others went out and found a woman caught in adultery. Bring her to the women's court and have a confrontation with Jesus. And I'm wanting you to see that Jesus speaks to them there saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now he is primarily seeking to reach the hearts of his disciples, of those that are interested in listening to him. And what is he saying to them? He's saying you might be at temple, you might have been under the ministry of religious leaders for many years, you might think you understand the way God's law should be applied, you might think that you know what separation should look like, what unity should look like, what fellowship should look like, what people we should avoid and what people we should not avoid. You might think you understand all of these things, how the heart of God would have you relate to others. But he is saying to his disciples primarily, I'm the light of the world. If you follow my example, you will walk in light, in truth, in harmony, in fellowship with God, and not in darkness. But if we were looking at the text in its completeness, we will shortly see that the Pharisees begin to take objection to Jesus' remark, and we will recognize that he is in a confrontation in the first portion of the verses that follow verse 12. He is in a direct confrontation with the religious leaders. Take, for example, what we read in verse 19. Then said they unto Jesus, where is your father? Jesus answered, and here I want you to note, he is primarily answering the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Jesus answered them, says, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. That is quite definitive, isn't it? There's no idea about them believing, is there? He says, you don't know me, you don't know my Father. Take another example, verses 23 and verse 24. And Jesus said unto them, who are the them here? The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders. This is not the way this conversation began, dear brothers and sisters. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that Jesus came to the woman's court and was teaching in the temple. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders inserted themselves and sought to promote their view of relationships and religious life and separation and how that all should look. And Jesus is speaking directly at them and saying, you know nothing about this truth. You don't know me, you don't know my Father. In verse 23, he says, I am from above, you are of this world. I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. That is an absolute statement. There's nothing about them believing. There's nothing about them understanding the heart and mind and way of God and being a participant with any illumination in the conversation as to how the Christian life should be lived. 
he not only disagreed with their recommendation as to how the adulterous woman should be dealt with, because he said, I don't condemn you to this adulterous woman, while saying, go and sin no more. But I'm wanting to emphasize so that you understand the context that we're working within to appreciate the principle that we're encouraging you to consider that we need the truth to set this free. That thus far, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and the scribes as a class because they sort of took over the scene and he's being very definite about it. He's telling them, you are going to die in your sins. You are from beneath. I am from above. Can you get any more specific and definitive than that? But when we get to verse 30 of John chapter 8, at the end of this conversation, as it were, this dialogue, this dispute between Jesus and the religious leaders that involves his illuminating remarks, we read that as he spoke these words, many believed on him. And I'm wanting you to recognize the many are not from the religious class, that is to say the religious leaders. They are believing Jews or God-fearing Jews at some level. They're coming to temple, you know, they're, they're, they're God-minded. You follow what I'm saying. And we're not in Galilee, we're in Jerusalem. This is, roughly speaking, a new set of hearers than are than, than is typically the case, if you understand what I mean. He spent more time ministering in the environs of Galilee, and his disciples hailed more, more commonly from Galilee, percentage-wise. But we begin in verse 31, and we see that Jesus then turned to those Jewish hearers which believed on him, and he spoke first speaks to them what in grammar is known as a conditional subordinate clause. It's enough for you to just capture the idea that there's a conditional element to what he says. He is speaking, as I am this afternoon, to an audience at this moment that is distinct from the religious leaders. To the religious leaders, he has established that they are from beneath, he is from above, they don't know him. They don't know his father. They're going to die in their sins. Okay, so we've addressed the false religious leaders. We've redressed, we've addressed the hypocrites. We've addressed false religion. We've addressed the deceivers. And now Jesus turns his attention to those that the text itself states believed on him. And he states a condition that is effectively saying in order for your life to be fully blessed, to enjoy all that God has prepared for you and is calling you into, you need to continue in my word. Because only by doing that will you become what he calls a disciple aletheos, a true disciple. Only will you then truly be a disciple. That subordinate clause modifies the verb to be, which is in the present active indicative. The relevance of that is that Jesus is saying, I'm speaking to those of you who are listening to me. I'm speaking to those of you that are attentive to my words. And I am saying only to the extent that you continue in my word, will you in an ongoing way be fully disciples. And only through that experience, once again, this is what? This is not a hearing in one moment, one discourse, one set of affairs that you might be in agreement with. Say, for example, there might be Jews there, which no doubt there were, who were essentially agreeing and in sympathy with the way that Jesus handled the issue of the adulterous woman. And they're listening to the way that he's addressing the Pharisees. And they are in agreement and in sympathy with what Jesus is saying. And rather than celebrating that particular reality, Jesus says the only way that you will be true disciples is if you continue on an ongoing basis. He does not say, by the way, sometimes we quote it and says, and we say, 
if you continue in my word, then you shall be my disciples. That's not what he says. He doesn't say that you're not my disciples right now. And so too with what I'm wanting to emphasize to our spirits. I am not saying that there is a whole list of things that we need to do and maybe someday we will enter into a fuller experience of the blessings that are promised in Psalm 133. What I am saying, however, is it is not enough to hear a message about it. It is not enough to have general agreement with the ideas. You have to commit yourself to an ongoing commitment or an ongoing faithfulness to the message and to the word that is being brought to your hearts. Because he says, then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now here I want to remind you that we said at the outset that, you know, this idea of the truth setting us free, how does this flow is the question? And the first principle is the truth has to set it free. And I'm expressing to you, I'll state it again, what I have in my spirit is more than just the obvious fact that it has to be preached on. That's true enough as far as it goes. How are you going to believe in these ideas if they're not preached on? But I'm taking it a step further, I hope you see. And I'm using John chapter 8, and I'm saying that if we feel like this is a commonplace, that is to say, to say that the truth sets it free, what are you really saying? You're just saying you get the right ideas in your head, in order for you to embrace the proper concepts, even you might say that we need to continue to live these things out and we need to stir these ideas up in our hearts and commit to obeying them from week to week. And that's all good, but I'm wanting us all to feel that this is more than a commonplace because that's exactly the point that Jesus was seeking to make to his hearers, when he said that then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, they responded effectively by saying, what else do we actually need? We are already within the believing community. We've already signed up for God. The idea that the truth is going to set us free doesn't really apply to us in any profound way because we're already in the community of the free. We're already Abraham's seed. I mean, I understand the idea that the truth will set us free. I get the general concept, but you're kind of hyperbolizing. You're kind of exaggerating. You're kind of grandstanding, saying to us who are believers or saying to the, Christ, the upper room Christian assembly that the way that unity will come about and the blessings that are promised to those who dwell in unity will be, first of all, by experiencing the same principle that Jesus describes in John chapter 8, experiencing the truth setting us free in the way that John 8 is, is talking about us. Now, what we're saying here is that it might just be the case, as it was with Jesus' hearers. It might be the case with you and with me and with my brothers and sisters in other church situations that the believing community itself is in need of greater personal liberty greater personal liberty in their understanding of the ways of God before they will become disciples indeed. Disciples indeed of whom? Of Jesus, who among other things, as we just saw within the context of this very chapter, he came to set the captives free. He is a great liberator. He heals the bruised. He heals the brokenhearted. He sets free the prisoners. Now, if the Jewish leaders drove the conversation among the temple observers, then there would have been division. There would have been death. There would have been a more accentuated separation between they who are viewed as the adulterers and the adulteresses. And indeed, she was caught in the very act. So certainly she's a sinner. And she is outside the precincts of the pure. She could not go beyond the woman's court. So all these forms of division would have been confirmed and established. But if you're reading John chapter 8 well, you are seeing that Jesus is contesting the current way in which these ideas of separation are manifesting. He is speaking in the woman's court. 
When the adulteress is brought to him, he does not apply a rigid application of the law, but he applies mercy and reaches out to her and tries to bring redemption to her so that she can become a part of the worshiping people of God. And he is saying to his hearers, the religious leaders are not good guides on these matters. He is saying, I am the light of the world. And when he finds some that are beginning to believe on him and showing some modicum of interest in the narrative that he is telling them, he is perceptive enough, and we must be ourselves perceptive enough to state that unless we realize that there are truths that we have to continue in, we have to keep going on in our understanding of what God wants to say, in order for us to gain greater personal liberty, because we're not free in every respect, we're not fully free in understanding the way that God wants us to operate, we function in restricted concepts that flow from traditions and patterns of behavior and unbalanced views of Scripture. We might flow in a too permissive stream. We might flow in a too restrictive stream of interaction and behavior and viewpoint. But nonetheless, we need to be set free. And it's only when the people of God are set free by the truth that they know how to dwell together in unity, dear brothers and sisters, such that the blessing of God can actually come to the people of God. And if the people of God, like the Jews that believed on Jesus, so you say, I believe in unity, but are you sure that you are fully free in your understanding of what that should look like? That you are free of the teachings of religious leaders that perhaps did not have the mind of God, did not represent the Spirit of Christ relative to these truths. If you like the Jews that listened to Jesus who we are told believe, and you have the idea that you aren't in any deep need of any freeing up. You are a card-carrying member, you know, in the church of Jesus Christ. You are a bona fide believer. You are well-read, well-thought, well-taught. You know how to reach out to others. You know how to keep proper separation from others. You've got this all wrapped up. But you fail to look around. And I understand that empirical evidence is not all there is to our investigation, but you fail to look around and see that we don't experience the blessing that is implied within the pilgrim Psalter and in Psalm 133 in particular, at least to such a convincing extent that we don't even need to ponder these sorts of teachings. I'm saying to you that we best not think it's a commonplace that the truth has to set it free because there's a number of things we have to grapple with in order to enter into the heart of God as to how to live this out. And we need to come to that message and that further teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ with a, with a, with a heart that says, Lord, I might be a part of the believing community but I might be walking in restrictions and in bondages that are restricting my heart. Well, I guess I made the point that they say we weren't in bondage to any man. How can you say to us that we need to be made free? I don't think this is true of you, but it's partly because of the way that I'm approaching this series, I think. There would certainly be a class of people that come to churches like this one that if you were to bring up the topic of unity, they think they basically understand it. They think they basically get it. We gotta separate from evil, we gotta reach out to other people. That's what else is there to know? More or less. They're not arrogant, like overtly. They just think they get it. And I'm suggesting to you it's not gonna flow until we let the Spirit of God probe our presuppositions. Not just willy-nilly, but listening to Jesus' word on these matters. We need a deeper liberation, which can lead to us becoming disciples indeed and unshackle us from any trace of what I will call religious rigor mortis, otherwise known as spiritual apathy. I think spiritual apathy is a fairly good description for the following remark. We be Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. 
effectively, we be Abraham's seed, what else is there to know? I think there's an awful lot more to know, is the burden of what I'm saying. I'm trying to say that I'm thankful that this is an assembly that believes in the Lord Jesus, and I am grateful for my brothers and sisters in Christ here and elsewhere that have a commitment to God's Word and they believe in Him, but it's still possible to you, for you or me to start to enter into this religious stiffness, religious rigor mortis, where you just become sort of formalized in the way you do church, in the way you understand the will of God, and you practice your faith way too close to they who responded to Jesus, and you say something like, well, we're the Upper Room Christian Assembly, or I'm Sister Jane, or I'm Brother Alan, or I'm Sister Jolene. In other words, what else is there to know? I know basically what walking with God looks like. I've been taught by this man or that man. I've read the books. I've gone through the teachings. And you understand what I'm trying to say. You Maybe you come, and we've had visitors, incidentally, over the years that sort of fit this description. They'll come to a place like this. They know my basic background. They'll listen to me teach on a topic and one way or another, they're somewhat slightly offended because they don't hear it exactly the way that they thought they would. And their sort of disposition is, you are, whether I intuit it or not, you're basically saying, I need some freeing up. I need some deeper understanding. And you're like, well, hey, I was a part of this movement. I am a part of this church. I have these set of commitments. What else is there to know? And I'm saying you're in one of the five or eight stages of death. We'll take the first of the eight because they're the most important. And I recognize that these stages describe the situation when death has already set in, but I'm going to apply it in terms of we need to be leery or wary of any signs of this transpiring. I understand that God can call those things that be not as though they are. He can speak life to the dry bones, but we still need to be examining ourselves. Rigor mortis is the third of the first five stages that follow after death has set in. The first stage is pallor mortis, comes from a Latin term that means pale, and that's when paleness begins to manifest in the human body. And I am going to liken this spiritually to when our countenance loses its flushness, its rootiness, like good old David, a man of rooty countenance, full of life and vigor and zeal for God, we become vanilla, as it were, in our continent, countenance. We become kind of plain. We lose our pallor. We lose our zeal. We become relatively indifferent. That's a sign, whether it's on the topic of unity or any other topic, we'll stick with unity because that's where we're at at the moment. That's a sign that you're gradually dying on this topic. You do need Jesus' remark in the, in the, in the burden of this message. You need the truth, my friend, to set you free. I look out at your countenance. I'm not stating I do anyone here, but it could be. I look at your countenance as I'm preaching. It's so pallid because you're asleep. Or it's so pallid because you're ho-hum and indifferent. The second stage is algormodus. Algormodus. That is one word. It's not algore. Mortis. Just to be clear. Algor is the Latin word for coldness. Reduction in body temperature is the second stage of the proof of death. First, the color goes out. Then you start to get cold. This is just a deepening of the disposition that is going to be exactly the way these so-called believers are going to go forth and live their lives that Jesus is speaking to because their attitude is, we're Abraham's seed. What more do we need? Their color has gone out of their skin. Are you hearing what I'm saying? They believe. They were sort of running face and listening to Jesus. And then he had something else to say to them. You need to stay in my word. That was the first truth. And they're like, nah, nah, that's, nah. That's just too much for me. I'm more plain. I'm more vanilla than that juicy message. No, I don't need that. And they're beginning to cool down. They're beginning to grow cold in their heart toward the Lord. That's 
then followed by what I'm originally talking about, rigor mortis, stiffness, stiffness. We aren't open to change. We aren't open to repentance. We aren't open to examining our understanding of God's Word, how we do church, how we relate to one another, how we relate to others. We're not open to God's teaching in Psalm 133 and in the Pilgrim Psalter in general. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Bible says that's where he commands the blessing, but it does us no good because we're so rigid. We're so stuck in one form. The last, the last time we did something religious, you know what I'm saying? We're stuck in that form. And, and the power has gone out of us. And, and, the, and the warmth has gone out of us. The warmth for others. The warmth for God's church to, 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 to grow and excel and be glorified or whatever. I'm just saying, I, I'm fully there with you as you see us, as you see when we go through the message. And as this narrative is building, by the way, go back to past messages. And I don't know how far we'll get today, but you will see that we're addressing this topic from the Word of God, not just emotionalism. But the Word of God itself advocates concern, zeal, feeling, compassion, mercy. It advocates that there be some color in our skin, some warmth in our temperature, and some flexibility in our behavior so as to do the work of God. The next stage is liver mortis. Livor in Latin means bluish color. It's when the blood begins to settle in the lower portion of the body. You'll pardon this somewhat fanciful interpretation, but I feel like this is when the blood of Jesus doesn't really even mean that much to the church anymore. The idea that Jesus could redeem a lost person, that the redemptive accomplishments of Jesus Christ on the cross should be applied and the church should be moving forward in the power of the blood. That we should want to see the redemptive work of Christ applied in ourselves and in our families and to the lost and meeting the needs of others. Well, the last of what in some lists comprise the eight stages of the proof of death, we will skip over. Put putrefaction, decomposition, skeletonization and fossilization, I suppose you can draw your own significance out of those ideas, but it's, it's all in the same direction of the life is going out of the church. The life is going out of you. You're becoming a skeleton of what the church of Jesus Christ should look like. I want to contrast with those kind of orientations the language of Psalm 51. We're contrasting the idea of the Spirit leaving the person, the body, the church, the heart growing colder, the face growing pallid, the actions growing stiff, the blood settling into a place of uselessness. I think it's arguable that that was actually occurring to David. How else would he been, how else would he have been in a place to commit the sins that he did with Bathsheba and against Uriah? He had grown cold toward God. The life had gone out of him. He was indifferent. He was not the same man. He was not the shepherd-hearted boy seeking to defend the little lambs and care for other people and poetically interested in the heart of God. He had gone cold and settled in his own authority and position and satisfied with what could come his way over against how he could meet the needs of others and recognize, for example, with Uriah and Bathsheba, this man, unlike you, only has one little lamb, and you're going to take it away from him. This is manifesting the harsh, cold-heartedness that is similar to the Pharisees when they dragged the woman caught in adultery before Jesus and wanted her to be stoned on the spot and for Jesus to throw the first stone. Nothing would have made them happier. But what we see in Psalm 51 is Jesus, excuse me, what we see in Psalm 51 is David didn't stay in that condition. The truth came to him. Yes, primarily through Nathan, but what I'm trying to say is the truth came to his heart and it began to set him free. It began to prime the pump. It began to break up the claw. 
so that the fount of living water could once again flow through his heart. And we find David saying in Psalm 51, in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. There's a key phrase. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. A consciousness, a sensitivity, an interest in the need of the Holy Spirit's flow. How does this flow, we ask ourselves? It flows when we as individuals and as a body are like David in Psalm 51. And we're open to a prophetic message. And I'm not saying from a man who's a prophet, but I'm saying... From the lips of God, we're open to Him speaking to us about our behavior and the way we're relating to other people and our value systems. And we're asking, or we're now sensitive to the need that the Holy Spirit needs to flow in our lives and that this will bring joy to our experience of salvation. We need to be upheld with God's free Spirit. And it's so interesting and applicable to everything that I'm presenting to your hearts, that in the 13th verse, what do we find? We find something that should be indeed so commonplace for those who are truly walking in the flow of the Spirit and in the blessings of unity, that when you see this, you should know this is your own experience. But alas, all too often, we don't see the connection between what David says in verses 10 through 12 and then what follows in verse 13. He says, when this flow begins to happen in my life, when the truth comes to me and sets me free from my rigor mortis, my unrepentance, my spiritual satisfaction in spite of my sin and indifference to the needs of others that are around me, my abuse of my power, he says, now that I am free and the Spirit is flowing through me and the freedom that truth has brought to my life, I will go and teach transgressors in your ways and sinners will be converted onto thee. This flow will bring about a desire and an interest for me to reach out to sinners and see conversion brought about, to speak to transgressors because I see myself as a transgressor, one in need of repentance, one in need of learning, one who does not say, I'm a Christian, I go to church, what else is there to know? But I'm one who is hungry and thirsty after righteousness. I'm one who is satisfied with my present spiritual state. I'm crying out to God as I continue in His truth to change me and set me free, grant me greater personal liberty so I can be a disciple Indeed, of the great liberator, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a group of mighty men this would look like if there were 30 or so men that were of a similar attitude of heart and commitment as Jesus, as David expresses here in Psalm 51. How different is David's outlook than the Pharisees in John chapter 8? David didn't say, then I will find transgressors and criticize them, point out their evil. I will find transgressors and I will compare myself with them. He says, I will find transgressors and I'll teach them your ways. I'll see that sinners are converted to you. You know what that's going to look like ultimately? It's going to look like brethren dwelling together in unity in the place where God has put His name. Bringing brethren together in unity and experiencing God's approval of that way of serving Him. God approves of that. You see, dear brothers and sisters, as was argued a month ago in our last study, one of the truths that we need to come to terms with, indeed, one of the truths that we will do some work with, and I will allow myself to minister within the style, if you will, of a developing narrative. I am more interested in approaching this topic in the way that I am than simply giving you four bullet points and calling it a day. I am seeking to responsibly, in a balanced fashion, in a well-thought-out presentation, but also in a very spiritually provoking way, I am seeking to make it clear to ourselves, most importantly, and to others to whom this message would be meaningful, 
that we need the truth to set us free. And one of the truths that we need to grapple with is the reality that there are plenty of transgressors out there. There are plenty of the unconverted out there. They're in church. They're out of church. They're in your neighborhood. They're on your street. They're in your family. They might even be within this assembly. And part of the picture of unity involves a life, zeal, power, warmth, openness to this element of what Christian unity is speaking about. And you might discover, depending on your own past religious history, you might discover that that idea is not a truth that you're that skilled in understanding and appreciating. It's not the kind of concepts that you were well trained in. And therefore, you need the truth to set you free, or unity will never be set free in the way that God's looking for. I was starting to say, when we speak about transgressors and we speak about the unconverted, we're talking about our suffering neighbors that are outside the walls of this place in which we gather. We're talking about those who are broken in heart. We're talking about those who are poor financially. We're talking about those who are lost in their emotions and in their understanding and in their value systems and in the way they live life. They're lost religiously. They're lost morally. They're lost intellectually. They are, as it were, the adulteresses that are in the act of sin of one form or another, the, the sort of thing that a certain religious sort of person only wants to drag out for an example to demonstrate in church so we can throw stones at it. And I'm saying that if that becomes the habit and the default sort of reaction of the church, any church, let's say the Upper Room Christian Assembly, then what is going to occur is that you will not be in the battle to win the hearts and souls of future brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're not in the battle to win the heart and souls of future brothers and sisters in Christ, then why should God place His blessing upon the limited number that is presently here, that says, we are here, we have our little assembly, we might even walk past the women's court, we don't want to reach out to the women, where are the men? Let's just have a men's meeting. I'm exaggerating just to make a point. We're not thoughtful about the women, we're not thoughtful about other classes, we go to our little court, our little church, we have our little meeting and our little attitude about what is outside of us, we have no interest in reaching out to the needs of others. And we think that as long as we are in agreement and we continue to gather together, that that's enough. That's unity. What else is there? It's unity. We've got unity. We agree on our distinctives and we've figured out that lots of people don't want to walk like us and that's their choice and we're not going to criticize them, but we're not really that concerned about reaching out to them or finding ways to do that or what that would look like or do we need to build this wall again? Are these walls even legitimate? We don't even investigate any of that because we don't need to because we understand this what else is there to know and we're like they to whom jesus was speaking we're abraham's seed i already understand these issues i've read a few books on it. what else is there to know here's something that you might want to know someone wrote this who has taught on this topic it is a summation of the last teaching on this topic that i hope you will find to be useful in order to continue to build the narrative in your mind. The Knights of the Golden Rule, well, I'm not speaking about crusaders here, except spiritually speaking. Knights of the Golden Rule, what's wrong with that? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you're not tracking with me, what I'm saying is, Paul told Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of your ministry. Fight the good fight of faith. Be out there, reaching out to others. Sharing this gospel, building God's church, financially applying yourself, resource-wise applying yourself, seeking to build the community of God as we started with in Psalm 132. Find where God is and try to build community toward that. And don't be too quick to grab the adulteresses and the adulterers and those who are missing the mark and in the very act 
and simply drag them to court or stone them because you may miss the heart of God. He may see, yes, what they're doing is wrong, but they need to be taught and shown mercy and then told, go and sin no more. And you might be surprised. Some people might need just that and then they won't go and sin so much anymore and they'll become your brother and sister in Christ. And there, God will command the blessing. So what I'm trying to say as I continue to read this to you is that the idea of knights of the golden rule, the golden rule, we should be knights of the golden rule. Christians should be those that spiritually speaking are suited up and mounting their spiritual steeds and listening to the captain of their salvation and being motivated to go out and fight the battles of the Lord and do His business. But I must read this summation of the last teaching in this series because, again, I'm seeking to keep the narrative going. The Knights of the Golden Rule, leading the charge by voice and will, voice and volition, against the powers of darkness, against the things that are hurting the culture and hurting people and Hurting churches, etc., have often turned out to be irreligious reformers. Now, you might not know that that's the case, but that fact was in part demonstrated in the last teaching we had on this topic. So if you're following the narrative, then what's entering into these studies is another truth, another motivation, another idea that you might not have thought about. It's the idea that there are people out there that are trying to meet the needs of others and they want to see brotherhood and fellowship and community. And the question for ourselves is where are we relative to that call? Is our skin pallid as it relates to that? Are we just vanilla and plain? We're indifferent? We're we're just the blood has gone out of our skin. We're cold. We're sort of in our rigid little mode of whatever we do, and we don't know how to move and be flexible and do something different. You think that's okay? I'm saying the truth needs to set you free. Because what I'm saying is, and and I must I apologize, but I have to parenthetically state they who are in this form of religious rigor mortis don't even know, for the most part, the story that is outside of them. Because they're not curious. They haven't read. They don't, they don't, they've never read like David Wilkerson, for example, crossing the switchblade, just to pick something at random that you should, if anything else, know something about that. Somebody who got his hands dirty, who got down there under God's direction, and God caused something to flow because he did more than just get into a church and have unity among themselves and say, that's unity. That's all there is. What else is there to know? Anything else? Maybe there's a lot more to know about what God is looking for when we talk about how do we get to brethren dwelling together under the influence of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Can we bring the blood back into this and see adulteresses forgiven? See the confused religious and socially brought the truth and sinners taught in the way? Because if we don't, others will. That's what I'm stating. There'll be others who are mounting up, putting on their gear to be the knights of the golden rule. They'll be the reformers, but consequently the reformation, quote unquote, turns out to be a deformation, which tends to harm more than it heals. This being a summation of what we're teaching and where we're going and things we need to hear means that it's concentrated, and I won't unpack at the moment, the implications of these ideas, but suffice it to say that human history, when the church becomes ossified and fossilized and dry skeletonized, when that happens, and I feel we're in a time when that is indeed the status quo, when that happens, dear brothers and sisters, then other individuals rise up and bring solutions to the hurting. Say, for example, in the vehicle of podcasts, and I'm not promoting podcasts, I'm just saying that is one of the methods or one of the instruments by which the modern person is being ministered to. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but many of the really popular podcasts present the voice of modern knights of the golden rule who do not have a Christian orientation. 
And maybe that doesn't touch your life, but I'm suggesting it should. Maybe you haven't been talking to your own children lately. You haven't been hearing who they listen to, who has captured their attention, what messages are coming into their life, and they're not alone. This younger generation is being ministered to by individuals who have mounted up on their salvation theories, their steeds of various salvation messages, whether it's evolution or therapy or psychology or social justice, you can turn a blind eye from it all and say, I just disagree with all of that and I'm unifying with those that also disagree with it. But while you do that, the knights of the golden rule, day after day, week after week, are pouring in their money, pouring in their efforts, making their podcasts, and many literally going out there and spending time with the hurting and giving them various resources and and pouring out their lives to them while it winds up being the blind leading the blind. Whenever the church constricts its heart in ministry, it also limits the flow of God's blessing. Inevitably, the religious will find a way to open things up and get a flow going. Into the desert of Christian indifference, an anointing will come from the head of a humanist or from the heights of the latest secular theorist. A spring of tainted waters will start the flow toward the next seductive unity. The right response to this sorry situation is not to leave the Bible and join Babylon, but nor is it to denounce the deeds of the non-Christian do-gooders while keeping one's distance from doing anything one's self. There should be balm in Gilead, salt in the streets, light in the alleys, if the church serves a risen Christ. There should be a unified family of God walking in love to their father, to one another, and to their neighbor. Ultimately, it will take Jesus' bodily return to establish his kingdom in the earth. But he has promised to command a blessing now into the place where brethren dwell together in unity. And I am arguing in this message, as I bring this to a close today, I am arguing it might not be the concepts of unity that you are presently limited in in your own way of thinking about it. We need to continue in Jesus' word so that we can know the full truth of what we should look like as a Christian church. And if we will open up our hearts to that and let God bring us there by His Spirit, listening all the while to Jesus' words and His words alone, but listening to the one who himself says, you need to stay in the conversation with me about what all the implications are that I am speaking about when I call you to Zion, when I call you to the church, and I say, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the oil that ran down the head, through the beard, onto the skirts of Aaron's garment. It's like the dew of Hermon and the dew of Mount Zion. It's there where I command the blessing. And I'll close by saying that I read that promise, not as something that only awaits Jesus' return, Though I do believe that it won't be until Christ returns himself that we will see humanity fully unified, walking in love and fellowship with each other. I believe until then there will be divisions and there must needs be divisions. But I will not, God helping me, allow rigor mortis to set into me spiritually such that if there's a blessing God wants to bring into our lives now, he can do it because I'm flexible enough to let his spirit guide me. We'll continue in these studies, dear brethren, as the Lord allows.